0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello,
1: my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for the second of two podcasts is Matthew Prescott, director of food policy for the Humane Society of the United States, the world's leading animal protection organization with more than 12 million supporters. Matt has worked aggressively and effectively at helping reform agribusiness practices in the service of better animal welfare. Matt, I'm delighted to have you here.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be
1: here. So in podcast number one, we talked about the nature of animal cruelty in the agriculture world, uh, how many animals are confined in these settings, and the way they're confined, and the negative consequences not only to the welfare of the animals, but to human health. Um, And I know you're working very hard to find solutions to these problems. So could we lead it off and just give us an overview of the sort of things you're working towards?
0: Absolutely. Uh, And for those who tuned into the first segment, don't worry, it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, There are farmers out there that are uh, working to do right by animals and working to implement more sustainable, more humane, more public health-minded farming systems and and with great success. Um, We've been helping shepherd in those types of systems through both legislative and corporate process. Um, Legislatively now, we've helped pass laws in eight states here in the U.S. that uh, outlaw one or several forms of intensive confinement of farm animals, gestation crates for breeding sows, uh, tiny little cages for egg-laying hens and the like. And by mandating uh, in, in these states that farmers move away from these types of systems, what we're doing is forcing innovation. Um, American farming uh, has a rich history of innovation. It's been one of the most innovative industries in our country, and it's kind of put a pause uh, on that innovation in recent years with the advent of these types of confinement systems. And so by taking a step back and working working in laws to either put a moratorium on these systems or to outright uh, ban them, we're... um, saying to farmers, look, you know, you have this history of innovation, let's keep moving forward. We don't want to go back to 1950. We want to go to 2050 in terms of farming. And uh, we've been very successful at doing that. And that's why we've seen now the influx of products like cage-free eggs and popularity, the influx of uh, corporate policies from major food companies like McDonald's or um, other major food companies outlawing within their supply chain, making policies within their supply chain, to move away from products like pork from sows confined in gestation crates. And so, so we've been very back, successful
1: at that. We'll come back in a moment and talk about this big company, big food company supply chain issue, which I think is absolutely fascinating. But let's talk about the legislative part first, since that's where you began. So have you resisted, a, uh, encountered a lot of resistance from the the agribusiness companies as you've tried to get these laws passed in states?
0: Unfortunately, we have. uh, In each of the eight states where we uh, have passed these types of laws, it has not been an easy road. In California, for example, in 2008, we passed a law outlawing uh, both gestation crates and battery cages, and um, the agribusiness industry spent almost $10 million opposing that ballot measure to try to convince people that these practices are somehow safe and humane, which, of course, couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. Um, So we're encountering a lot of resistance, but we're prevailing every single time. We've yet to wage, for example, a ballot initiative where we haven't won by an overwhelming majority. In fact, in California, in 08, when we passed that law... More people voted in favor of that ballot initiative than have voted in favor of a ballot initiative in California ever on any issue in the entire state's history. More people came out to vote yes that year for Proposition 2 in favor of farm animals than ever have on any other ballot campaign.
1: Well, since in the earlier podcast you mentioned that it's still a minority, a growing minority, but a minority nonetheless, of people who are even aware of what goes on in these farm systems, how do you match that up with the large turnout for the vote and the fact that people are caring deeply about this?
0: well it's um as the as our opponents in California spent several million dollars to oppose the bill, we were also forced to spend quite a bit of money to promote it and The way that we did that simply by was showing footage on the evening news, taking out commercials, showing people what happens on these farms um Now, the agribusiness industry liked to say that we were showing the worst of the worst, but really, we were just showing standard industry practice. You put out a video of a pig confined in a crate so small she can't even turn her own body around. People don't support that. And then you say, hey, you have an opportunity to vote on this law come election day that's going to outlaw this in your state. They come out in droves for it because this notion of wanting to help animals is something that uh, everybody wants to be part of. You, you'd be hard-pressed to find a person out there that supports animal cruelty. And when people have the opportunity to help them, they want to take that opportunity.
1: The typical history in some industries is that they'll fight these things early on, and then when they find they just can't fight them and they're losing time after time, they'll finally come to the table and start talking. Is that happening here?
0: It is happening. And the and the gestation crate issue for pork production in 2007, for example, after we passed a law in Arizona that outlawed gestation crates, the pork industry had no choice but to take major notice. And the largest pork company in the world, Smithfield Foods, uh, largest pork producer in the entire world, including here in the U.S., came out with a policy that said within 10 years, we're going to get rid of gestation crates in our supply chain for our company-owned breeding facilities, and other major pork companies have made similar policies. Um, you know, it tends to be the case with social movements that uh, there's a, there's an old saying that goes, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you. Uh, first they laugh at you, then they ignore you, then they fight you, then you win. Um, what we seem to be, when it comes to agribusiness issues, uh, finally in the phase where we're starting to win and in big, big ways.
1: Uh, it's a remarkable turn of events when the industry feels defeated enough that they have to come to the table and talk and start doing some of these things voluntarily. Now, I know it's also the the history in some, some areas of business that when the industry does come to the table, it's with the aim of weakening the sort of things that might get passed. Do you see any of that?
0: Well, I think that um, first of all, I think that a lot in the a lot of folks in the farming industry do want to do the right thing. Um, a lot of folks uh, who who are farmers are kind of strong armed into farming a certain way by companies that they contract with or by trade organizations or whatever the case may be. But they don't want to have to do it that way. Um, farmers are are good people. They're people just like you and I. They care about animals. They don't want to hurt animals. I, I don't believe that anybody. In America gets into farming because they want to cause harm to animals. Um, In fact, for many people, it's quite the opposite. Uh, It's just an unfortunate product of the system that we have today. And so when we come to the table with uh, agribusiness companies even, or farming groups, trade groups, um, I believe that there is something there where they want to be able to do the right thing, uh, because it makes people feel good to help animals, whether you're a factory farmer, or you work for the Humane Society. Uh, It's something that's in us all, I think. Um, now, that said, uh, it has not quite been so flowery every time. Um, they have a lot of vested interest in these systems. They've spent a lot of money on cages and crates that haven't depreciated in value yet, and it would be a costly endeavor for them to just throw them out. And so what we work toward are common-sense solutions that work for everybody. We don't, we're not asking anybody to change their system overnight. Uh, in fact, in California, we gave a, a period of many, many years for this law to, to take a hold, um, so that farmers wouldn't have to just change production systems overnight and so um, we've been very successful at finding these common sense reforms these areas of mutual agreement where we can come together with farmers or, or agribusiness companies and say hey here's a problem more and more people agree it's a problem scientists agree it's a problem legislators are now agreeing it's a problem." Um, let's find a way to move away from this system that works for everybody involved, for us, for you, for the animals, for the farmers, for everybody. And that's really the area where we've been most successful.
1: I'd like to return to an issue that you briefly introduced earlier, which is how the people that sell a lot of food, the restaurant chains and, and the like, the Walmarts of the world that are selling food and things like that, have become important players in thinking about this issue, and I know you've interacted with them a lot. Could you explain how and what's occurred as a result?
0: Yeah, you know, I think um, that most people think about corporate responsibility issues, now corporate social responsibility. Um, It seems like a natural fit for companies, but it wasn't always that way. On animal cruelty in the farming sector especially, it wasn't always that way. In fact, going back even just to 1997, There were no companies in the U.S. that had any kind of policy about how animals in their supply chain were treated. No restaurant companies, no grocery store companies had policies dictating what their suppliers could or couldn't do to animals. Now that seems like a crazy notion, but it didn't just happen all of a sudden. Uh, Groups like the Humane Society and others started pushing and persuading the McDonald's of the world and um, other major chains to start creating policies that would help them monitor how animals are treated in their supply chain and ensure that at least certain standards are being met. And at first that was in the form of slaughterhouse audits. So in 1999, McDonald's said, we're going to require now that all any, any supplier supplying beef or pork to us have an audit done at their slaughterhouse by us that will monitor for animal welfare. Now it's transitioned into other, other practices, like cage confinement of egg-laying hens or of breeding pigs. And so now we're seeing companies like McDonald's most recently coming out with a policy saying, we don't believe in gestation crate confinement for sows. We think it's unsustainable, we think it's humane, and we want to do away with it, and we're going to work with our suppliers to do away with it. And so the evolution continues. Um, We view our role when we work with companies as really helping them get on at the bottom of the escalator and then slowly continue moving up. You know, this issue is a dynamic one like any social issue it changes over time with science with public opinion with legislation and our we view our role with corporate america as kind of a guide to help them stay at pace with those issues and continue moving up that escalator these
1: sounds like these sound like major victories Um, and vast vast numbers of of people and animals could be affected by this now some of the listeners may be asking what is this going to do to the price of food so if you can raise, you know, 100,000 or a million chickens in a facility and all of a sudden new regulations come along or legislation that says you have to provide double or triple or quadruple the amount of space for each animal, one can imagine the cost of the the end product the what people are buying at the store will go up. Is that assumption justified? And if it is, do you think consumers are willing to pay a premium for the protection of animal welfare?
0: Well, the concern isn't justified, but even if it were, every available study that I've seen shows that people are willing to pay more to ensure that animals are treated well, just like people are now willing to pay more to ensure good environmental regulations or to buy non-sweatshop-produced clothing products, for example. But uh, the agribusiness industry likes to portray this these types of changes as doomsday. It's always, uh, it's always like an apocalyptic situation that they're being faced with uh, before they have all the facts straight. Um, gestation crates and battery cages and other confinement systems were developed with this thinking that when well, we bring the animals in from outside we prevent them from even moving they'll burn fewer calories we can feed them less food which costs a lot of money we can use less space because we're lining them up and stacking them up instead of letting them roam free and it's going to be cheaper but it hasn't been that case uh, studies show that for example um, in pork production a study out of Iowa State University, again, the largest pork producing state in the nation, two and a half year long study supported by the Iowa Department of Agriculture, the USDA and others, found that it can cost pork producers 11% less to not use the gestation crates to house their pigs in open groups and open pens. And this lies in the face of what the pork industry thought would be the case. But as they've been forced to innovate through this legislation and through these corporate policies and they've taken another look at their own economics, they've said, oh, well, uh, hold on a second, actually, maybe this will work out in our favor. On the egg issue, it works out similarly. It only costs about a penny per egg more, less than one penny per egg more, in fact, uh, according to the egg industry's own estimates, to produce an egg in a cage-free environment versus from a cage. And so there, the cost is marginal.
1: Do you see a time where foods will be labeled according to how the animals have been treated in the the food production process?
0: We're starting to see that now already. There are independent labels out there like Humane uh, Certified. Uh, Whole Foods has a very progressive rating program, a five-star rating program uh, through an organization called Global Animal Partnership, and we're starting to see companies develop their own labels, um, which can be a little bit dicey sometimes, but um, we've seen some very positive ones come out of that. Um, So it's starting to happen, and I think it's only going to happen more. In fact, there's a piece of federal legislation right now that we're working on in conjunction with the egg industry, lobbying for the same piece of legislation that, among other things, would require that every carton of eggs sold in a grocery store in the U.S. have a label right on the the package that says how those hens were treated, eggs from caged hens, eggs from cage-free hens, eggs from uh, free-range hens, and, and on down the line. And so uh, if that legislation passes, soon we'll we'll see that label and component. But this is definitely something that people are are looking out for more and more. All the things
1: you've described in this podcast <clears throat> excuse me, represent major changes in the way people are thinking about their food and thinking about where it comes from and how the animals were treated. And I know the Humane Society has played an absolutely central role in that. So congratulations for all you've accomplished.
0: Thank you very much. And um, I, I, I applaud the work of the Rudd Center for its role in uh, Americans' evolution of thinking about food in general and environmental organizations that are out there and uh, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health and so many other organizations and individuals that for so many years have been saying these same types of things about sustainability and about obesity and about uh, public health and the environment about with, with regard to food production. And um, for so many years there have been so many voices Uh, all pushing in the same direction. And finally, now those voices are starting to coalesce into um, something that the average American is finally starting to listen to and starting to realize. And so uh, it's been a very nice evolution to bear witness to.
1: Good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Our guest is Matthew Prescott, Director of Food Policy for the Humane Society of the United States. Please visit our website, which is at www.yalerudcenter.org where you'll find a variety of resources on food and food policy issues, including a free monthly newsletter and actually bi-weekly newsletter now that will go out to people on food policy issues and links, of course, to the other podcasts that we've recorded. Thank you.